the case for Uranus. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Every 10 years, the National Academy submits a report outlining what it thinks NASA should focus on when it comes to planetary science efforts. Uranus, or Uranus, came out the big winner. In its decadal survey, scientists recommend NASA send a mission to the ice giant on the outskirts of our solar system. It would be the first mission to the planet since Voyager 2 zoomed by the planet back in 1986. So why Uranus? We'll speak with Paul Byrne, a planetary scientist at Washington University in St. Louis, about the selection and what scientists hope to learn about a flagship mission to the mysterious planet. Then, the Decadal also made recommendations for other planetary missions, including the continued exploration of the Red Planet. We'll speak with University of Florida astrobiologist Amy Williams about the Decadal's recommendation for Mars explorers, and how the group also took a look at diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in the field of planetary sciences. The next 10 years of exploration, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. More than a billion and a half miles from Earth. That's where scientists want NASA to send a spacecraft in the next decade. The target of this mission is Uranus, a mysterious planet that saw its last Earthly visitors a year before I was born. That's more than 30 years ago. Of all the places in the solar system to visit, why Uranus? To talk more about the selection of Uranus for a flagship NASA mission is Paul Byrne. He's a planetary scientist at Washington University in St. Louis. Paul, welcome back to the show. My pleasure, Brendan. Good talking with you. A few of the priorities that the Decadal identified for NASA um, was a mission to, to Uranus. And, and, and help me settle settle this. Is it Uranus? Uranus? How do, how do you pronounce it? So, so We're going to be talking about it for 40 years. Uh, you bet, right? So, so when it was first discovered, it was called George. Uh, but then it was, it was, it was called uh, so Uranus, Uranus, Uranus. There's any number of ways. I think it's a Greek word originally. Um, but I am on record on Twitter as saying that however one chooses to say it, Lean into the jokes now, because like you say, we're going to have 40 years ahead of us, right, of this, of this science. So just get out of our system now. So by the time this thing launches in the early 2030s, we've kind of got most of it out of our system. So we can actually focus on the science of this, of this really weird and really interesting planet that we know almost nothing about. So, so this is a big deal. Um, in fact, we know so little about Uranus. Uh, and Neptune, the so-called ice giants. Now, whether it's the right phrase, so there's this whole other related conversation. But the bottom line is that we have sent big flagship orbiters to Jupiter, which was NASA's Galileo mission, to Saturn, which is NASA's Cassini mission. We've had flagship missions to Mars. We've had some terrific missions throughout the solar system. We've even gone out to Pluto and beyond. But we've only ever been to Uranus and Neptune once with a flyby, and that was a Voyager 2 spacecraft. Voyager 2 did this grand tour of the solar system to Jupiter-Saturn, and then it flew past Uranus in 86 and flew past Neptune in 89. And over the course of several hours, we got some images of the inbound and outbound phases of this, these flybys. But that was it. That's it. We have really rudimentary understanding of these worlds. Now, we can take some measurements of them from, say, the Hubble Space Telescope from Earth. That is nowhere near the same as actually being in orbit around one of these worlds. And really, Uranus has been recognized, and, and Neptune, although it's worth pointing out that Uranus is about 20 times farther from the Sun than Earth is. Neptune is 30 times farther 
from the sun than Earth is. So although they're two compelling worlds, Uranus is just a little bit easier to get to. It's not easy to get to, but it's a little less difficult to get to. Um, but, but Uranus, a Uranus orbiter flagship, was ranked highly in the decadal survey 10 years ago, and it lost out to Mars and Europa. But it was clearly recognized as being an important, substantial thing worthy of scientific exploration. And I'm delighted to see that it has now risen to the top. Now that Mars and Europa have largely been tackled in the last 10 years, and you know we're a long way from finishing those missions, but they're well underway. Uh, it, it makes sense now that it is time... It's Uranus's time for us to start thinking about sending a, a flagship there. Mm-hmm. It's mind-boggling to think, Paul, that it has been that long since a mission has gone there. When we have explored places like, you know, Pluto and and the Kuiper Belt and all that, why why haven't we gone there? Um, but with with this priority, you know, we'll see a mission in in the coming decades. What, as a planetary scientist and, and as a planetary science community as a whole. What do you all want to find out about Uranus? What what do we not know about it? And, and what questions can this mission possibly answer? Sure. Well, I mean, it's easier to say what we do know about it because it's a much shorter list. Um, so, one of the things that, <laughs> so one of the things that really interests me, I love solid surface bodies, worlds that have surfaces that have craters, because Uranus is what we call an ice giant. It's, it's mainly made of helium and hydrogen. So it has no surface to speak of, at least not one that we can see or access. Um, we actually don't know what the inside of Uranus is made of. It's possible that there could be an Earth-sized rocky world deep inside it under an enormous blanket of thick, gaseous atmosphere. Uh, that's one of the things that this, this kind of mission would be able to tell, to, to, to test that. But Uranus has a natural ring system, and it has a natural system of satellites, of icy satellites. Titania, Umbrium, Ariel, uh, a really weird one called Miranda, which looks a bit like a jigsaw puzzle put together wrong. I mean, re- re- really basic stuff like, why does it look weird? And for those moons, it's worth pointing out, we only know what about half of them look like, like as in half of each moon, the bit that was seen by Voyager 2 during its flyby. We don't know what the other half looks like. So the benefit of studying Uranus is that it, well, there's a whole pile of reasons, but one of them is that because it has rings and because it has moons and because it's got some funky stuff, it's got an atmosphere, the thermal structure of which you don't understand. The whole planetary system, by the way, is on its side. Its axial tilt is 98 degrees, so its pole sort of points towards the sun. We don't know why that is. We suspect it may be an early, a giant impact very early on in its life. But there's some really basic fundamental stuff like what's the inside made of? What do the moons look like? How do the rings form? I mean, really basic stuff. The other thing, too, uh, and I should say, one of, the, one of the benefits of that approach is that because there are people who study these different things in the community... This is going to have a far-reaching set of interests. You're going to have people who study rings getting involved, people who study ISIS satellites like me, people who study planetary atmospheres, planetary interiors. This mission, much like Cassini and Galileo, will have something for a huge number of people in the community. So that's also of real value because you're, you're bringing disparate people together, and, and, and that's always going to be more than the sum of its parts. There's another really compelling reason for studying Uranus, which is that when we look to other planetary systems, Uranus is the type of world we're finding more than any other. At least so far, there's definitely a bias in how we detect these so-called extrasolar or exoplanets. But what we realize is that there certainly seems to be a lot of Uranus-sized worlds. And it may be that Uranus is a kind of, not perhaps the default, but a standard kind of world. You know, we have one, maybe two in the system, in our system, Uranus and Neptune. But it might be a very common type of world generally. And if that's the case, studying Uranus is going to give us a great deal of information about these worlds generally. And of course, we are, we are millennia, if ever, from visiting other ice giants and other planetary systems. They're so far away. So this is 
the only one, or Ida and Neptune, or the only two of their kind that we we're going to be able to get to in any foreseeable future. I should point out, by the way, the Decadal Survey ranked Neptune science as equally compelling as Uranus science. And the only reason the Uranus flagship was ranked over a Neptune flagship was simply because we can get to Neptune, we can get to Uranus faster than we can get to Neptune, and with less technology development. What, what would this mission to, to Uranus look like? So there are definitely part of the decadal process for planetary is that there's a series of studies conducted in which uh, people get together and, and, and design a spacecraft mission so that it can be costed. Because it turns out that you can do most things in the solar system. Whether you can do them with the resources available is a different question. And so it's very important to have these studies done beforehand and during the decadal survey process while the report is being written. Because we want to know, for example, how much will it cost to go to Neptune versus Uranus? That's one of the bases by which the steering committee of the decadal made the decision to prioritize Uranus. So these studies are very important. So, yeah, there is information. Um, But the other point, an important aspect of the decadal is that it tries not to be overly prescriptive. Because there could be some new technology development or some new compelling science or some new compelling instrument that's developed that might play some role in how we would actually implement this mission. So the idea of the study, in the, and all these studies are publicly available as appendices to the, to the new report, which is publicly accessible, uh, which is free, free to read. Um, these studies give some ideas to what it would look like, but they're not designed to be overly prescriptive. It would probably look like the Cassini mission, in that it would probably have a similar-looking spacecraft. It would be relatively long, uh, cylindrical object with lots of it, antennae sticking out of it, magnetometer, a huge dish at one end to communicate back to Earth, uh, radio thermal generators, radioisotopic thermal generators to generate electricity. Of course, it's way too far from the sun for solar panels to work, so this thing's going to have to be nuclear-powered, uh, which is exactly how we did Cassini, how we've done New Horizons to Pluto, how Mars Perseverance and Mars Curiosity rovers are working. We have plenty of experience with that. Um, and the idea basically is that this thing would also carry, in addition to the main spacecraft, it would carry a probe. And the reason this is important is because although you can tell an enormous amount of material from or information if you like about the planet from orbit by orbiting it the real way you want to really get information is to deploy something into the planet itself we did this successfully with the galileo probe in the 1990s Uh, the cassini mission to saturn carried a probe called huygens which landed on the surface of the biggest icy satellite there called titan so the it's envisioned that for this uranus orbiter mission this flagship it would carry in addition to the orbiter it would carry a probe and it would deploy this probe into the atmosphere of Uranus itself. Yes, it would probe Uranus. Again, I, I, <laughs> get the I, jokes I, I, out I, now. Get the jokes out of our system now, right? <laughs> so this is going to plunge into Uranus. And in doing so, it's going to measure temperature, composition, pressure. It's going to give us information that you cannot get from orbit. That will tell us a great deal of information. And these things, I mean, if, it's, if the probe into Jupiter is any guide, this thing will last only a few hours. The orbiter, the flagship orbiter, will last presumably at least a decade. We know that that's what Galileo and Cassini did. But this thing will basically orbit for a long time. But the probe will only last a few hours. But in that time, through that one transect through the atmosphere, we will learn more than we can ever learn from orbit of what's inside Uranus. How long would it take for... Um a mission like this to actually arrive at, at Uranus and, 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 and how long until we can get data points that will answer some of those questions? Sure. So you're right. There is no, you know, until and if we develop warp drive, we are beholden to physics. And that means that a trip out to Uranus. So let's say, for example, anytime you go out away from Earth, away from the sun, you're basically climbing uphill. You're fighting the gravity of the sun. 
you can go really anywhere you want if you have unlimited time. But we don't have unlimited time. We want to see this mission before we die. And also, we don't want to have a spacecraft out there for decades if we can avoid it, because we don't quite know how its propellants will behave or how the electronics will survive. So it's in our interest to get it there as relatively quickly as we possibly can. One of the things that helps the Uranus mission in the next decade, the decade of this, is that Jupiter will be aligned in such a way that it's advantageously positioned to take advantage of, to have what we call a gravity assist that will help the spacecraft get out to Uranus faster. Even with optional or optimal launch windows between, let's say, 2031 and 2038, we're still talking about perhaps as much between 8 and 12 years for the spacecraft to get there. That's just the reality of how far away Uranus is, how much energy it takes to climb uphill away from the sun. We're just going to have to wait a long time. That is the nature of deep space exploration. Voyager 2 spacecraft, if I recall correctly, was launched in 1977, and it flew past Uranus in 1986, nine years later, but it wasn't making any attempt to slow down to be captured into orbit of Uranus. It went right past, and it was a further three years to get out to Neptune. Space is stupid big, and it takes a long time to get stuff through it. Uh, That's just the nature of it. So yeah, even if this development, the decadal survey calls for this Uranus flagship being starting to be developed in 2024, the, the next possible financial year in which NASA could request funds to do so. Look for, you know, financial year 24 starts October next year. Look for some time in calendar 24 if NASA accepts this recommendation, which I'd be surprised if it didn't. Look for 2024 to be the year that NASA starts to seriously develop plans for finding this thing. But even if it launches the first available launch window in 2031, which gives you a seven-year development time, which is tight but, but doable, for something as complicated as this. Launching in 2031, we're still probably not going to see any data from this thing until late that decade, early the next decade, possibly 20 years from now. That's, that's just how long this takes. And for the foreseeable future, with, with technology we know and we have on the horizon, there's no way we can expedite that. We've been speaking with Paul Byrne. He's Associate Professor of Earth and Planetary Science at Washington University in St. Louis. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Brendan. Thanks very much. The Decadal also recommended a mission to Enceladus, a spewing moon of Saturn. Paul Byrne spoke with me about that mission selection. I'll post that conversation as a bonus episode later this week. Be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed so you don't miss it. Still to come, what's ahead for Mars over the next decade? University of Florida's Amy Williams is here to lay it all out. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. It's not all about Uranus in the coming decade of discovery. Other planets are getting some attention, too. Planets like Mars. Here to bring us up to speed on the plans for Mars exploration from the decadal is Amy Williams. She's an astrobiologist at the University of Florida. Amy, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me back. So... Uh, Uranus got all the headlines, right? That's 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 the flagship mission. That's what everybody's talking about. Uh, but there's still tons of other things about planetary sciences in, in this massive document, uh, including Mars. Tell us a bit about Mars and and so that we don't forget that it's still there yes, <laughs> with all these headlines of Uranus. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so uh, absolutely, our new flagships for um, Uranus. It's super exciting. It's it's even though I am a Martian. 
I have this great excitement for exploration of our, our solar system and beyond, right? And so I'm so thrilled to see the ice giants getting getting their time, I would say in the sun, but maybe maybe <laughs> that's the wrong way to describe it. So yes, um, these, these flagships are super exciting um, and massive resources go into them. We want them to be successful. But yes, please don't forget Mars is a thing. I don't think that that's, um, we're not at that risk quite yet. But yeah, the, the Mars program um, had its moment to shine in the decadal as well. And um, some of the, the big things that we've discussed in the decadal is the maintenance of the Mars Exploration Program is a, a program um, that will help to uh, guide Mar Mars exploration, make sure that our, our missions and our goals and the way we're achieving them are all aligned. Um, so one of the big things that we've been able to uh, prioritize or highlight is ensuring that Mars sample return um, is able to continue. We, we certainly want to see that happen. And, and as I've said before on the show, I really think the science that's going to be enabled by these return samples is absolutely revolutionary. And so it's fabulous to see it prioritized in the decadal. We certainly need to continue to work to make it happen. And as a member of the Perseverance mission and, and seeing us collect samples uh, on with the rover um, in Jezero Crater, you know, I, I certainly want to see those samples come home. And and I think it's important to talk about those samples because it was proposed by a previous decadal, right? I mean, this is this is kind of how missions are are are, are moved through the process from, you know, the scientists talking about it to the the actual missions happening in the funding getting to to the program right i mean this is part of of the process right yeah the decadal i mean so yeah msr mars sample return was proposed in the previous decadal as the highest priority flagship in the way that the uranus mission is now and um so you know mars sample return is such a large architecture that it spans over multi you know multiple decades in order to enable this really revolutionary science. And so that's why you see it cropping up again in this decadal, that it's just such a large scale operation. Um, but, you know, to accomplish extraordinary science, sometimes it takes long time frames and extraordinary resources to enable it. What about Mars was brought up in, in this particular decadal? Obviously, continuing with the sample return, um, did it get any more attention? Yes. So Mars gets a little bit more attention. Um, so, yeah, we want to continue the Mars exploration program, the enable Mars sample return. And actually, the um, next priority that came out of the, the Mars discussion was this kind of medium-sized or uh, medium-class mission called Mars Life Explorer. So uh, this would be a mission that's subsequent to the peak spinning of Mars sample return, which, as I said, for extraordinary science, needing extraordinary resources, it also uh, does have a, a pretty big price tag on it. And so um, what the Mars panel has prioritized is um, medium class, sort of the cost range that the New Frontiers uh, category falls into to support Mars Life Explorer Um so uh, we call it Emily as our, our little nickname for it. Um, so Emily is this lander with a two meter drill that's designed to access the ice uh, beneath the surface of uh, the Martian mid latitudes. And one of the reasons this is so exciting is that these are the regions where there might be episodic ice melt. So you could actually have uh, liquid water on, a, on an episodic basis. And um, when you think about habitable environments and places where life would want to live, uh, as far as we understand, liquid water is is a requirement, and so this is one of the really exciting aspects of the Emily mission that we would we would be able to search for 
biosignatures or evidence for life in a modern environment. So this is, is a, a, I argue, a, a very exciting next step in our exploration of Mars in searching for evidence of water with the MER missions, then evidence of carbon, which we've also found with the Curiosity rover, now searching for evidence of ancient life with perseverance and Mars sample return. And, you know, that question keeps cropping up. Could there be life on Mars today? One of the best places to look for it, um, you know, is, 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 or I should say that these mid-latitude ices are one of the best places that we can try to look for modern life on Mars. Um, so, of course, like that's the that's the big leading goal, right? Search for signatures of life in the near surface of Mars and drilling down to two meters would be far deeper than than any other uh, NASA mission has been able to to accomplish um, with a with a mission that would have this kind of scale to search for these biosignatures. But it's not just searching for biosignatures. Of course, there's so many interesting questions about the ice at the Martian mid latitudes that we can address um, we would be able to characterize the habitability of ice and ice cemented regolith at depth, which we've never been able to do before. Um, we'd be able to characterize sort of the thermophysical properties of the material down that borehole. Again, something that's absolutely unique we haven't done before. And and then lastly, there's this goal to be able to understand the, the flux of uh, water vapor and the meteorology that's associated with this particular um, sort of latitude or latitudinal range on Mars. So it's not just searching for for life, uh, which of course is a really high bar, um, but there are all these really important questions that we can address. And I feel that our technologies are advancing enough that we can send these incredible instrument suites on a lander and be able to to address these questions um, on a on a effectively a new frontiers budget, which is one of the big constraints that we face here. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, that sounds way cooler than a mission to Uranus. So I, I think we throw oh. all the money at, 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 at looking at the ice on Mars. You've, you've convinced me. You've convinced me. <laughs> I, would never, I would never go up against my colleagues in the ice giants category. And, you know, there's so much incredible science to be done within our whole solar system. I'm, I'm truly thrilled to see the ice giant um, community be able to get their, their moment to, to explore worlds that we just know so very little about. Um, but you know, this, this, this sometimes incremental and sometimes these large leaps in our understanding of other worlds, you know, can occur with even these uh, relatively modest missions, sending landers to another world and exploring just one little spot in situ. But you learn so much more about the environment and its dynamic nature, um, just from these kinds of missions as well. I, I was curious, because one of, one of the other kind of, you know, headline grabbing missions is one to uh, Enceladus, um, specifically to look for, for signs of life. As, as an astrobiologist, that has to be exciting. But I'm wondering, you know, if, if what we learn from these missions have some applicability uh, to other missions like the search for life on Mars, what kind of crossover science are you going to get from all these missions? Absolutely. There is, you know, the, the technologies that we're developing for the search for life on Mars actually is applicable to the search for life um, on other bodies in our solar system. And so I like to think of Mars as kind of a proving ground for these technologies, a world that that doesn't take a decade or more to fly to, right? It's um, accessible. We can test out technologies in one extreme environment and take those lessons learned to make instruments and to make instrument suites that are capable of not only surviving, but being extraordinarily successful in 
extreme environments that we are just beginning to explore, right? Enceladus, um, you know, the Europa Clipper mission has also uh, been prioritized to be maintained as something that we're, we're working on. Um, but yeah, the second priority new flagship for the Enceladus Orbilander system is is really exciting to me. That's that's sort of the next frontier in, in my interest as an astrobiologist. Um, you know, I keep talking about looking for liquid water on on Mars, but here's a world that has a, a water ocean. Um, and we're so excited to be able to explore it to the best of our abilities, you know, f- uh, flying through these plumes, landing on the surface and looking at that fresh material. There are so many questions that will be addressed by these missions. Um, and I, I think things that we just haven't even thought of yet, those unknown unknowns. It's super exciting. I cannot wait uh, to talk more about all these things uh, as they come into development. But but coming closer to home, um, you know, one of the things that, that um, the, the organization and the committees looked at was the state of the profession. Um, and, and I know you had um, your hand in, in doing that. What were you looking at and, and what kind of things did, did you conclude about the state of planetary science and, and working in planetary science? Um, so, yeah, it was it was an absolutely extraordinary opportunity to serve on the state of the profession working group, um, which we've also called, you know, the DEIA, diversity, equity, accessibility and inclusion um, of the profession. And, you know, the the sort of big there was so much that we covered and so much we wanted to include. And, and one of the things that I've learned about working on the decadal is that if you want to write a document that's actionable and that is uh, digestible and, and, you know, how long is the decadal? Almost 800 pages, I think. So that alone is, is a lot to digest. But we wanted to make recommendations that are going to be the most impactful, at least for the coming decade, to improve the state of the profession, to improve those DEIA um, initiatives. Mm-hmm. And, and finally, uh, Dr. Williams, when can we expect to drill into Mars, into that ice. Oh, Mars Life Explorer. So, um, you know, we're, we're looking at launch windows in the mid to late thirties. Um, so the, yeah, so the planning for this mission would, would really kick off, um, sort of in the latter part of the decade. Um, we want to get past that big, big money crunch truly from Mars sample return, such an important mission to, to do, um, and then beyond that, we can start the the really thinking about the design and implementation. This is a, a PI competed um, level uh, of mission, so you know we can have all kinds of folks proposing ideas and instrument concepts that can go beyond what we were even able to bring into a, the mission as part of a concept study here in the decadal. But we're looking at you know mid to late 30s for launch. Um, you know, and, and compared to uh, Uranus or Enceladus, it's a much shorter transit. So, um, yeah, we, we would hope to be able to send a mission that can get two meters into the subsurface in the, in the upcoming decades here. Very exciting. We've been talking with Dr. Amy Williams. She's an astrobiologist at the University of Florida. Always gets me even more and more excited about Mars whenever you come talk on this show. Thank you so Fabulous. much for chatting with Dr. Williams. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or really wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. This is the last show for our intern, Beatrice Oliveira. 
Bia, thank you so much for your hard work and best of luck to you at Astra. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>